You're listening to Morning Short, the podcast that brings you one great short story every morning. Available on listen.morningshort.com, iTunes, SoundCloud, and any podcast app. Today's story is White Magic by Ella Darcy. Before we start, I have a question for you. Have you tweeted your personal invite link to Morning Short yet? Share great stories and earn Morning Short prizes. Get your link at share.morningshort.com. And now to the story. I spent one evening last summer with my friend Major, pharmacien in the little town of Jacques Lepore. He pronounces his name Major, by the by, it being a quaint custom of the islands to write proper names one way and speak them another, thus serving to bolster up that old, old story of the German savant's account of the difficulties of the English language. There you spell a man's name Verulam, says he reproachfully, and pronounce it Bacon. Major and I sat in the pleasant wood-paneled parlor behind the shop, from whence all sorts of aromatic odors found their way in through the closed door, to mingle with the fragrance of figs, Ceylon tea, and hot gauche à beurre, constituting the excellent meal spread before us. The large, old-fashioned windows were wide open, and I looked straight out upon the harbor, filled with holiday yachts and the wonderful azure sea. Over against the other islands opposite, a gleam of white streaked the water. White clouds hung motionless in the blue sky, and a tiny boat with white sails passed out round Faya Point. A white butterfly entered the room to flicker in gay, uncertain curves above the cloth, and a warm, reflected light played over the slender rat-tailed forks and spoons, and raised by a tone or two the color of Major's tanned face and yellow beard for in spite of a sedentary profession, his preferences lie with an out-of-door life, and he takes an afternoon off whenever practicable, as he had done that day, to follow his favorite pursuit over the golf links at Leyland. While he had been deep in the mysteries of teeing and putting, with no subtler problem to be solved than the judicious selection of Mashie and Cleek, I had explored some of the curious cromlechs, or pukeles, scattered over this part of the island, and my thoughts and speech harked back irresistibly to the strange old religions and usages of the past. Science is all very well in its way, said I, and of course it's an inestimable advantage to inhabit this so-called nineteenth century, but the medieval want of science was far more picturesque. The once universal belief in charms and portents, in wandering saints and fighting fairies, must have lent an interest to life which these prosaic days sadly lack. Madelon then would steal from her bed on moonlight nights in May, and slip across the dewy grass with naked feet to seek the reflection of her future husband's face in the first running stream she passed. Now, Miss Mary Jones puts on her bonnet and steps round the corner, on no more romantic errand than the investment of her month's wages in the saving bank at two and a half per cent. Major laughed. I wish he did anything half so prudent. That has not been my experience of the Mary Joneses. Well, anyhow, I insisted, the board school has rationalized them. It has pulled up the innate poetry of their nature to replace it by decimal fractions. To which Major answered, Rot, and offered me his cigarette case. After the first few silent whiffs, he went on as follows. The innate poetry of woman. Confess now, there is no more unpoetic creature under the sun. 
offer her the sublimest poetry ever written and the Daily Telegraph's latest article on fashions or a good sound murder or reliable divorce, and there's no betting on her choice, for it's a dead certainty. Many men have a love of poetry, but I'm inclined to think that a hundred women out of ninety-nine positively dislike it. Which struck me as true. We'll drop the poetry, then, I answered. But my point remains that if the girl of today has no superstitions, the girl of tomorrow will have no beliefs. Teach her to sit down thirteen to table, to spill the salt, and walk under a ladder with equanimity, and you open the door for Spencer and Huxley, and— And all the rest of it, said I, coming to an impotent conclusion. Oh, if superstition were the salvation of woman— but you are thinking of young ladies in London, I suppose? Here in the islands I can show you as much superstition as you please. I'm not sure that the country people in their heart of hearts don't still worship the old gods of the Pugolais. You would not, of course, find anyone to own up to it, or to betray the least glimmer of an idea as to your meaning, were you to question him, for ours is a shrewd folk, wearing their orthodoxy bravely. But possibly the old beliefs are cherished with the more ardor for not being openly avowed. Now you like bits of actuality. I'll give you one, and a proof, too, that the modern maiden is still separated by many a fathom of salt sea water from these fortunate isles. Some time ago, on a market morning, a girl came into the shop and asked for some blood from a dragon. Some what? said I, not catching her words. "'Well, just a little blood from a dragon,' she answered very tremulously and blushing. She meant, of course, dragon's blood, a resinous powder, formerly much used in medicine, though out of fashion now. She was a pretty young creature with pink cheeks and dark eyes, and a forlorn expression of countenance which didn't seem at all to fit in with her blooming health. Not from the town, or I should have known her face— evidently come from one of the country parishes to sell her butter and eggs. I was interested to discover what she wanted the dragon's blood for, and after a certain amount of hesitation she told me, They do say it's good, sir, if anything should have happened betwixt you and your young man. Then you have a young man, said I. Yes, sir. And you've fallen out with him. Yes, sir and tears rose to her eyes at the admission, while her mouth rounded with awe at my amazing perspicacity. "'And you mean to send him some dragon's blood as a love potion?' "'No, sir. You've got to mix it with water you fetched from the three sisters' well, and drink it yourself in nine sips on nine nights running, and get into bed without once looking in the glass, and then if you've done everything properly and haven't made any mistake—' He'll come back to you and love you twice as much as before. And La Mère Taudevin, Tostevin, gave you that precious recipe and made you cross her hand with silver into the bargain, said I severely, on which the tears began to flow outright. You know the old lady, said Major, breaking off his narration, who lives in the curious stone house at the corner of the marketplace, a reputed witch who learned both black and white magic from her mother, who was a daughter of Elie Mouton, the famous sorcerer of Cacéuro. I could tell you some funny stories relating to La Mère Taudevin, who numbers more clients among the officers and fine ladies here than in any other class. And very curious, too, is the history of that stone house, with the Brancourt arms still sculpted on the side. 
You can see them if you turn down by the water gate. This old sinister-looking building, or rather portion of a building, for more modern houses have been built over the greater portion of the site and now press upon it from either hand, once belonged to one of the finest mansions in the islands, but through a curse and a crime has been brought down to its present condition, while the Brancour family have long since been utterly extinct. But all this isn't the story of Elsie Mai, which turned out to be the name of my little customer. The Mais are of the Vauvert parish, and Pierre-Jean, the father of this girl, began life as a day-laborer, took to tomato-growing on borrowed capital, and now owns a dozen glass-houses of his own. Mrs. Mai does some dairy farming on a minute scale, the profits of which she and Miss Elsie share as pin-money. The young man who is courting Elsie is a son of Toumé, the builder. He probably had something to do with the putting up of Maui's greenhouses, but anyhow, he has been constantly over at Vauvert during the last six months, superintending the alterations at de Caterelle's place. To May, it would seem, is a devoted but imperious lover, and the Persian and Median laws are as butter compared with the inflexibility of his decisions. The little rift within the lute, which has lately turned all the music to discord, occurred last Monday week, bank holiday as you may remember the sunday school to which elsie belongs and it's a strange anomaly isn't it that a girl going to sunday school should still have a rooted belief in white magic the school was to go for an outing to prawn bay and Toumé had arranged to join his sweetheart at the starting point but he had made her promise that if by chance he should be delayed she would not go with the others but would wait until he came to fetch her of course it so happened that she was detained and equally of course elsie like a true woman went off without him she did all she knew to make me believe she went quite against her own wishes that her companions forced her to go the beautifully yielding nature of a woman never comes out so conspicuously as when she is being coerced into following her own secret desires anyhow to may arriving some time later found her gone he followed on, and under ordinary circumstances, I suppose, a sharp reprimand would have been considered sufficient. Unfortunately, the young man arrived on the scene to find his truant love deep in the frolics of kiss in the ring. After tea at the Caterelle Arms, the whole party had adjourned to a neighboring meadow, and were thus whiling away the time to the exhilarating strains of a French horn and a concertina. Elsie was led into the center of the ring by various country bumpkins, and kissed beneath the eyes of heaven, of her neighbors, and of her embittered swain. You may have been amongst us long enough to know that the Toumay family are of a higher social grade than the Mais, and I suppose the Misses Toumay never in their lives stooped to anything so ungenteel as public kiss in the ring. It was not surprising, therefore, to hear that after this incident, me and my young man had words, as Elsie put it. Note, said Major, the descriptive truth of this expression, having words. Among the unlettered, lovers only do have words when vexed. At other times they will sit holding hands throughout a long summer's afternoon and not exchange two remarks an hour. Love seals their tongue, anger alone unlooses it and naturally when unloosened it runs on from sheer want of practice a great deal faster and farther than they desire so life being thorny and youth being vain they parted late that same evening with the understanding that they would meet no more 
and to be wroth with one we love worked its usual harrowing effects. Tumay took to billiards and brandy, Elsie to tears and invocations of Beelzebub. Then came Mère Taudevin's recipe, my own more powerful potion, and now once more all is silence and balmy peace. Do you mean to tell me you sold the child a charm and didn't enlighten her as to its futility? I sold her some bicarbonate of soda worth a couple of doublets and charged her five shillings for it into the bargain, said Major unblushingly. A wrinkle I learned from once overhearing an old lady I had treated for nothing, expatiating to a crony. Eh, but my good, my good, that Mr. Major, I don't think much of him. He give away his advice and his medicine for nothing. They not worth nothing neither, for sure. So I made Elsie hand me over five British shillings and gave her the powder and told her to drink it with her meals. But I threw in another prescription, which, if less important, must nevertheless be punctiliously carried out if the charm was to have any effect. The very next time, I told her, that you meet your young man in the street, walk straight up to him without looking to the right or to the left, and hold out your hand, saying these words, Please, I so want to be friends again. Then, if you've been a good girl, have taken the powder regularly and not forgotten one of my directions, you'll find that all will come right. Now, little as you may credit it, said Major, smiling, the charm worked for all that we live in the so-called 19th century. Elsie came into the shop only yesterday to tell me the results and to thank me very prettily. I shall always come to you now, sir, she was good enough to say. I mean, if anything was to go wrong again, you know a great deal more than Mare Toda than I'm sure. Yes, I'm a famous sorcerer, said I, but you had better not speak about the powder. You are wise enough to see that it was just your own conduct in meeting your young man, rather more than halfway, that did the trick, eh? She looked at me with eyes brimming over with wisdom. You needn't be afraid, sir. I'll not speak of it. Mertode then always made me promise to keep silence, too. But of course I know it was the powder that worked the charm. And to that belief the dear creature will stick to the last day of her life. Women are wonderful enigmas. Explain to them that tight-lacing displaces all the internal organs, and show them diagrams to illustrate your point. They smile sweetly, say, Oh, how funny! and go out to buy their new stays half an inch smaller than their old ones. But tell them they must never pass a pin in the street for luck's sake, if it lies with its point towards them, and they will sedulously look for and pick up every such confounded pin they see. Talk to a woman of the marvels of science, and she turns a deaf ear, or refuses point-blank to believe you. Yet she is absolutely all ear for any old wife's tale, drinks it greedily in, and never loses hold of it for the rest of her days. But does she, said I, that's the point in dispute, and though your story shows there's still a commendable amount of superstition in the islands, I'm afraid if you were to come to London, you would not find sufficient to cover a threepenny piece. Woman is woman all the world over, said Major sententiously, no matter what mental garb happens to be in fashion at the time. Gratez la femme et vous trouvez la folle. For see here, if I had said to Mademoiselle Elsie, Well, you were in the wrong, it's your place to take the first step toward reconciliation, she would have laughed in my face or flung out of the shop in a rage. 
but because I sold her a little humbugging powder under the guise of a charm, she submitted herself with the docility of a pet lambkin. No, one need never hope to prevail through wisdom with a woman, and if I could have realized that ten years ago, it would have been better for me. He fell silent, thinking of his past, which to me, who knew it, seemed almost an excuse for his cynicism. I sought a change of idea. The splendor of the pageant outside supplied me with one. The sun had set, and all the eastern world of sky and water stretching before us was steeped in the glories of the afterglow. The ripple seemed painted in dabs of metallic gold upon a surface of polished blue-gray steel. Over the islands opposite hung a far-reaching golden cloud, with faint-drawn, up-curled edges, as though thinned out upon the sky by some monster brush, and while I watched it, this cloud changed from gold to rose color, and instantly the steel mirror of the sea glowed rosy too, and was streaked and shaded with a wonderful rosy brown. As the color grew momentarily more intense in the sky above, so did the sea appear to pulse to a more vivid copperish rose, until at last it was like nothing so much as a sea of flowing fire. And the cloud flamed fiery too, yet all the while its upcurled edges rested in exquisite contrast upon a background of most cool cerulean blue. The little sailing boat, which I had noticed an hour previously, reappeared from behind the point. The sail was lowered as it entered the harbor, and the boatman took to his oars. I watched it creep over the glittering water until it vanished beneath the window sill. I got up and went over to the window to hold it still in sight. It was sculled by a young man in rosy shirt-sleeves, and opposite him in the stern sat a girl in a rosy gown. So long as I had observed them, not one word had either spoken. In silence they had crossed the harbor, in silence the sculler had brought his craft alongside the landing stage, and secured her to a ring in the stones. Still silent, he helped his companion to step out upon the quay. Here, said I to Major, is a couple confirming your silent theory with a vengeance. We must suppose that much love has rendered them absolutely dumb. He came and leaned from the window, too. It's not a couple, but the couple, said he. And after all, in spite of cheap jesting, there are some things more eloquent than speech. For at this instant, finding themselves alone upon the jetty, the young man had taken the girl into his arms, and she had lifted a frank, responsive mouth to return his kiss. Five minutes later, the sea had faded into dull grays and sober browns. Starved white clouds moved dispiritedly over a vacant sky, and by cricking the back of my neck I was able to follow Toumé's black coat and the white frock of Miss Elsie until they reached Poitavin's wine vaults, and, turning up the water gate, were lost to view. Before your next story, rate us five stars on iTunes. We count on your tweets and reviews to help us bring our stories to the largest number of readers possible. Visit share.morningshort.com to invite your family and friends to listen to stories from Morning Short. Learn more about Morning Short Project and sign up for our daily emails at morningshort.com.